In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's the dying days of summer, 2023. I'm sitting on a dock on Sprout Lake, which incidentally has recently been named BC's best lake. The water is clear and warm. On this particular morning, I'm watching young wake surfers in brightly colored swimsuits do tricks and have fun out behind the boat. There's a crowd of moms and dads on the dock cheering on their kids. The moms wear dark sunglasses. They sip coffee and joke about having too much wine at the campsite last night. The atmosphere is upbeat, friendly, relaxed. One of the moms tells me she knew Amber Manthorne. They went to school together. They shared a birthday. Another mentions she's an island crime listener. And she's followed Michael Dunahy's story very closely. Now, sitting on the dock, the sunshine beaming down on my wide-brimmed hat, surrounded by laughter and the sparkling morning lake, I'm struck by a sort of cognitive dissonance once again. It's hard to believe that lovely Vancouver Island is home to so many dark stories. This is an update to Seasons 1 through 5. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime. When I began Island Crime, I had this idea that each season I would tell one story, and then I would move on, begin a new case. I found that hard. As long as the case remains open and unsolved, as long as there are questions to ask, threads to pull, I'm going to continue to keep chipping away. When there are significant developments in any of the stories, I'll update the seasons. In today's episode, I'm going to walk you through where I'm at with each one of these cases. Please know there are steps that I take that I can't yet talk about on the podcast. For example, if I think being public about something will hurt an investigation or cause harm to an individual, I'll keep my cards close. But where I can be transparent or where I need your help, I'll get into it here. My Frequency Network colleagues Stephanie Phillips and Jordan Heath Rawlings are here to help with the updates. Hi, all. Hi, Laura. Hello, Laura. Why don't we start with Whiskey Creek? Laura, what's going on with that series? So I've been thinking a lot about the Whiskey Creek victims recently. The third anniversary of the murders is on Halloween. 
So as I put up my 12-foot-high skeleton or hang ghosts from my trees, I'm thinking about the victims at Whiskey Creek. Tyler, Sean, Shanda, and of course, the survivor. After the series dropped, Tyler's mom received a final report from the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission of the RCMP regarding her concerns over how various officers dealt with both the missing person reports and the Whiskey Creek incident itself. The report is 10 pages long, and it addresses a number of areas. But in short, the commission did not support Tyler's mom's allegations that the officers involved in the missing persons reports and the safety and wellness checks did anything wrong. The commission found their actions reasonable and adequate. However, the commission did agree with Tyler's mother regarding her concern that officers failed to respond to a report of shots fired on November 1st, 2020. Jordan, why don't you share some of what they had to say? I can get into that for you. Here is part of what the report had to say about that. The RCMP themselves carried out the code of conduct investigations focused on the non-response to the report of shots fired. The allegation against each officer was identical. On or about November 1st, 2020, during the course of duties, the officers knowingly neglected to adequately investigate a criminal offense or other assigned occurrence without justification. It is therefore alleged that the officers failed to be diligent in the performance of their duties, contrary to the RCMP Code of Conduct. The following written reprimand was issued. With respect to the allegation, I find your actions fell well below the expectations and service standards the RCMP has set for itself. As a member of the RCMP, you are held to a higher standard and account. Our actions, or lack of actions, regarding investigations such as this one, can diminish trust and confidence in the RCMP's ability to effectively serve our communities. It is imperative that as a member of Canada's National Police Force, you now work to regain public trust by doing better in the otherwise valuable services you provide the community. I had lunch with Tyler's mom a couple of weeks ago, and she is still determined to push for answers and accountability. And while I suspect learning about that written reprimand is really cold comfort to her, it's rare for the public to get to hear about really any kind of consequence for a code of conduct investigation. And I'm still hearing from people about the Whiskey Creek series, which frankly is heartening because, as you know, I worried listeners might not have as much compassion for the victims due to the addictions and criminal backgrounds of some. This note came in from a listener named Aaron Donnelly. I'll read this one for you, Laura. I'm currently starting season five. My jaw dropped when I heard the episode about the Black Donnellys. I live in the London, Ontario area. As you can tell by my last name, I actually have a connection to the story and supposedly a distant relation. I appreciate the way you told their story, and I can't wait to listen to more of the Whiskey Creek series. Thank you for your work to bring awareness to these important crimes for victims and communities. 
I loved getting that note from a possible descendant of the Donnelly family. And I also welcome hearing from those who have complaints. I received this letter from someone who was critical of my interview with Papa John, victim Sean McGrath's dad. I'll read this one. Hello, I am listening to your Island Crime Whiskey Creek podcast. Disturbing stuff. Poor Papa John. Poor Sean, a.k.a. Crazy. Boo-hoo-hoo. You have no idea who these people are. The whole thing goes way deeper than you know. You were conned by Papa Jay. So I've had similar reactions from listeners regarding interviews with guys like Willie Curry or Boxer Dave or Purolator Bob from season one. And these are people whose criminal backgrounds I acknowledge in the podcast, but I listen to what they have to say, because in trying to learn about crimes, it's helpful to be open to all perspectives. That doesn't mean that I, or you, the listener, need to agree with or believe everything that is said, but I think I'm more likely to learn something new if I keep an open mind and talk to everyone. And speaking of that, I gather you spoke with someone quite recently who had a new perspective on that day. That's right. I heard from a guy who was dirt biking out at Whiskey Creek the morning after the shootings. He told me that day he spotted a little black and white chihuahua type dog running loose nearby. I recalled that John McGrath had mentioned he had given Shanda and his daughter Tina, little dogs like his own dog, Diego, who I met that day out at the trailer. Diego? Diego, come. We know four dogs were killed in the Whiskey Creek incident. Come here, little friend. But I now think it's possible there was another survivor of the Whiskey Creek shooting, a little black and white dog. There have also been a number of queries about the song By and By, which listeners can hear throughout the Whiskey Creek series. I personally love this song. Shoes are untied. Time is a ticking. So is the tide. But I am not worrying. Things are what they are. Come rain or come shine or a shooting star. Tyler's mom told me her son loved traditional country music. And his friends spoke of how Tyler was just a really positive guy, despite his circumstances. So when I came across this tune, I thought it had a kind of bittersweet melancholy that just sounded right. It's by an artist named Henrik Nagy, who was really great when I reached out to him about featuring the song in Whiskey Creek. And I'd also like to take a moment to mention this note of nostalgia, really, for anyone who may have heard me raving about the Sasquatch fries at Bigfoot Burgers in Whiskey Creek. The owners posted this note online a few months back. There's no good way to announce this, so let's pull off the Band-Aid together. Bigfoot Burgers is closing. They went on to say that Whiskey Creek has just seen one major loss after another. And with the main highway through Whiskey Creek closed on and off due to a forest fire, Bigfoot Burgers is now another casualty of this long, hot summer of 2023.
Well, if we're moving on from Whiskey Creek, you recently updated Amber Manthorne's story. What's new on that front? This is the case that is literally closest to my home. And it is the most recent of all of the stories I've covered on Island Crime. The latest development was the death this past summer of Justin Hall, Amber's boyfriend. The man who you will recall was initially reported as missing alongside Amber, but then subsequently surfaced. I approached Justin's family a month or so after his death to see if they would consider speaking with me. But at this point, they have declined that invitation. Here's part of a brief note I received from someone close to the family. I'm not sure there's anything else we can say at this point. No new information has come forward. Amber is still missing, and that is absolutely heartbreaking. I wish there was something that would bring her family some peace, but we don't have anything we can add. Justin dealt with an incredible amount of bullying and constant harassment. He was vilified to the point of escalating his addiction and paranoia, and he just couldn't take it anymore. I wish people knew the impact of their words, constant attacks and actions when they use social media to vilify someone publicly. The best thing to do is leave Justin out of it and focus on Amber. I hope you understand. Of course, I can't possibly put myself in their shoes or truly understand what they're going through. But I also appreciate that those who love Amber will wonder if Justin might have said something, really anything that could help in finding Amber or shed some light on what happened around the time she disappeared. So please, if you were in contact with Justin Hall in the past year before his death, if he talked to you about anything regarding Amber's disappearance, do get in touch with me at laura at laurapalmer.ca. Speaking of getting in touch, I know that in one of the Finding Amber updates, we heard from a guy named Michael. He had been engaging with Justin online, and he described himself as an antagonist. How did listeners respond to his provocative approach? I wondered if there might be blowback from people who felt Michael may have crossed a line. Listener Darren Naylor sent in this note. Yeah, here's what Darren said. Michael's tactics towards Justin Hall were perfectly fine. What this case tells us, if anything like this happens, don't sit and wait for the RCMP. Get an outside source involved early and conduct your own investigation. The RCMP doesn't have the manpower. This case exposes that. Amber's sister mentioned they received one phone call. Is that a joke? I commend Michael for what he was able to do. He went for what he knew would rattle Justin Hall's cage, and it worked. Why wasn't he heavily interrogated? Why was he on the streets? These types of cases require desperate measures, and the ethical borders change. Really enjoy your podcasts? This case has really hit a nerve with me. It could have been any parent's daughter. You may also recall that in one of the updates, a guy named Jeff, a river swimmer, talked about items of clothing he had found in a river near where Amber's Jeep was located. Jeff wondered whether the items might belong to Amber, as she is pictured wearing a light-colored cardigan in some of the missing posters. Now, after that episode dropped, I heard from a friend of Amber's who told me the sweater Amber wears in the photo belonged to her and is currently hanging in her closet. 
so at least one of the items Jeff found does not belong to Amber. Laura, I know you welcome all feedback, critical and positive, but I want to raise this note of concern regarding that particular episode of Finding Amber. I love your show and I'm a big fan. You're talking about the guy who swims in the rivers and how one time he found a foot. And then you mentioned the feet that have washed ashore for years and how it's usually someone who has quote unquote committed suicide. This never ever used to bother me until I lost my mom to suicide a couple of years ago. Since committed has a negative connotation, for example, you commit a crime, it implies a negative towards these people who lost their lives, many of whom are fighting mental illness. And it was a bit jarring for me as a listener, having experienced losing a loved one to suicide. Saying someone died by suicide or lost their life to suicide or anything else to that effect is a little bit gentler. I just wanted to share that. I'm really so grateful for that note. It's such an important point. Language matters, and I'll do better. Mm -hmm. I just learned something, too, that I'll use. So season three of Missing Michael had a huge response when it was released. This is obviously a very famous case. Is there anything new on the Michael Dunahy story? This past summer, Michael's family hosted the 30th annual Michael Dunahy Tournament of Hope with 24 ball teams over the weekend. The Dunahys also hosted their annual walk. Now that's more than 30 years of keeping Michael Dunahy's story in the public eye, which really is absolutely remarkable. My last update to Michael's story was the two-part focus on the brown van man and his partner. The Victoria Police now have a new lead on Michael's file. But to date, they have not agreed to an interview. So I can't say whether or not the brown van man is getting a fresh look. I did speak to the brown van man's partner once again, briefly on the phone, just to see if following her spouse's death, she might have had a change of heart about speaking with me. I got a short, curt no. Moving on now to the Gone Boy season. The Gone Boy season also has many unanswered questions. You last updated the series with Branded Kearney, who turned up alive after being missing for five years. Is anything else happening with the men? Please Bring Me Home is a not-for-profit group that works with the families of the missing. They are now involved in the cases of two of Vancouver Island's missing men. Kelly McLeod, who I featured in the series, and another, a young guy named Jordan Halling. There are searches happening, one quite recently. So there's some movement there too. Are any of the cases connected? I still don't know. But I'd say perhaps the most important thing to emerge from that season is a greater awareness of the specific stories which had been underreported and opening up the conversation about the number of missing men here on the island. For example, the series prompted a guy to call me a few months ago. He wanted to tell me about a scary situation, which he experienced while out walking along the highway near Campbell River. This guy felt he'd narrowly escaped a possible abduction attempt, and his story was really quite disturbing. 
we agreed to meet. I drove across the island, but he never showed. Now, I believe his account, and I still hope to bring you his story at some point. And on a related note, you may recall that in the Gone Boys series, I referenced the case of a Comox Valley young guy named E.B. He had gone missing and then surfaced a few days later in the summer of 2018. I'd heard rumors, so I connected with people close to the man, and they confirmed that this young guy has said he was abducted. In a phone call to the local detachment, police also confirmed to me that there was an allegation of an abduction, but they would not talk to me on the record. So in October 2020, I filed a Freedom of Information request. In April 2023, I got a response. Police released really a very limited amount of information. They confirmed that they took at least two statements from EB after he was found. As well, they included the media release for public assistance that was made shortly after EB went missing. I'll read this, just in case people want to hear what it actually said. This is from a Monday, August 20th, 2018. It's titled, Police Seek Public Assistance. The Comox Valley RCMP are seeking assistance from the public in identifying a suspicious male seen on 29th Street in Courtney on Thursday, August 9th, 2018. The suspicious male was frantically waving at passing vehicles. The male was wearing khaki pants and a long-sleeve gray shirt. Police are asking anyone who was in the area between 6.30 a.m. and 8 a.m. and saw anything suspicious to call the Comox Valley RCMP. Thanks, Jordan. That timing coincides with when EB first disappears. The rest of the FOI report includes only the very barest of information. But it does look like the police sent EB's statements off to another investigator for statement analysis. After that, there are a number of follow-up calls and emails, and it appears the RCMP are trying to schedule a polygraph test with EB. I'd still love to speak with this young man, but I also appreciate that there is likely trauma around whatever happened that weekend. And I have to respect, he may never want to speak about it publicly. And now, Laura, I'm going to ask you to go all the way back to where Island Crime began, season one, with the story of Lisa Marie Young, who vanished from Nanaimo in 2002. It has uh, been a while, I think, since we've discussed this. Anything new there? I've traveled a bit on the island this summer, and it struck me how Lisa's case, it really is more visible than ever. There is still a giant lit billboard on the highway, and that's thanks to an organization called the Little Red Dress Project. And there are smaller yard signs. And once again, this summer, Lisa's friends and family held their annual March for Justice. And they did something new this year. Lisa was a big fan of the local music scene. So this year, after the march, there was a concert in her honor. Stage, a butterfly just flew past us, so we know she's here. She's watching. So There were many speakers and performers. My name is Surreal. This is my good friend Raymond Salgado. You probably know him, right? 
have a listen to them. We're do a song that we wrote a few years ago called How Many More. No and one of pain's only gifts is a change of perspective. Because when the ripples in the rain go away, you can see the reflection. These are the lessons that leave an impression. Even as a little seed, I can see that we need a connection. People see it as a mental infection. We're jealous as it's a steal of soul. Keeping the reaper collected. The luminescence is starting to fade away. The dark is strong tonight, right before I do right. He's a new man, but it's hard to keep believing in reasons to be breathing. Dealing with demons and all your people are leaving. I've lost so many to the struggle and depression. I like to think they're sitting in heaven with all the legends. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the strength to hold on? Just to make it to today, you've got to be so strong. The journey's short, but the road's long. How many more gotta go before we start to see what's so wrong? How many more gotta go? How many more gotta go? And what about the search for Lisa and the investigation? Is there anything new? In recent episodes of Lisa's story, you heard from a man who was with Lisa the night she vanished, and from a guy whose name is often discussed as a person of interest in her case. Those interviews sparked more leads. For example, I interviewed a man named Willie Curry. He said he knew of a home where Christopher Adair had allegedly stopped with Lisa on the evening she vanished. I've now spoken with someone who was at that residence that night, and I hope to tell you more in future episodes. I'm also involved in ongoing searches for Lisa. We're currently looking in the woods behind a property once owned by someone connected with Lisa's case. As well, I've been working with Lisa's father, Don, to assist him in setting up a registered disability savings fund for his son, Robbie. That's Lisa's little brother. Even at 21, Lisa had big plans of helping her brother, who has a developmental disability. And she wanted to help her parents support him in the years ahead. It feels like a tangible thing to honor Lisa's life and legacy. Thank you, first of all, Laura, for all those updates. It's good to know that you never leave these cases alone, no matter how many years have passed. But, uh, but before we go today, I gather you have some other news to pass along to listeners. Island Crime is now on YouTube. I've uploaded the audio with a still image, so anyone who prefers to listen on YouTube can now find Island Crime there too. I also have an Island Crime Facebook page. I was admittedly late to the party on that front, but I have put out a call there recently to those with expertise in policing or forensics. It's really helpful to be able to inform my stories with a range of perspectives. And that's not always possible with an open case. So a big thank you to the folks who have already responded to that request. I'm really grateful to everyone who stopped by the page to offer feedback and encouragement. If you haven't already checked it out, it's a good way to stay plugged into island crime between seasons. Okay, last, last thing I promise. We talked recently about season six, which I know you're already working on. Is there anything you want to share with listeners now? What I'll say at this point is that I'm deep into research on another Vancouver Island unsolved murder. A cold case from the 1990s. I'm working towards having the new series ready to roll out early in 2024. And man, we can't wait to hear it, Laura. Thanks for 
all your work. Uh, Keep it up. Stay safe out there. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. In the meantime, please do take a moment to rate and review Island Crime. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus. Plus.